So turn to James chapter 2. I know we're supposed to be in 1 Timothy. But these past two weeks have rocked our country. We have seen, really in 2020, how fragile health is. We've seen how fragile economic security and prosperity is, exactly whatever that means. And we've seen peace within our cities as something, all of these things are things that can be changed in one moment. So quickly things can change. And so last week we discussed on the day, uh, we, did, we were looking at the, the birth of the church and Pentecost, and we talked about the purposes of the church and the power of the church. And that certainly touched upon some of the issues that are facing our country today. And I, if you didn't hear it or maybe you missed it, I go back and listen in the context of that. This past Wednesday night we had a, a Q&A that addressed some of these questions. And today I want to talk about this passage here in chapter 2 of James, verses 1 through 13, where he speaks against the sin of partiality, and that is the title of the message. I want to just read this passage to you. Begin at verse 1. It says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, You stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen. My beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin. And are convicted by the law as a transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So he speaks to the church, and at the church there was this problem of partiality. They were showing kindness and favoritism to the rich person uh, that walked through the door and giving him special treatment and uh, a warm welcome and a special seat. But to the poor person who came in with filthy clothing, there was not that same kindness. There was that, that same kind of love and uh, welcoming spirit. It was partiality. What is partiality? It's an interesting word. It's combined of two Greek words, and it literally just would be um, face and receive. Face and receive. To receive. So the, the idea here is that you're receiving somebody on the basis of what? Their looks. 
And so in this instance, this is something about class. It's not a, a racial division here. This is a class division. And so based upon a person's uh, status in the community, and that would be noted by the way they wore, there was a partiality, a, a, a face receiving that was going on. This is the verb form of this word means to be of no value, to consider to be of no value. So as these poor people were walking in, they were showing partiality. They were uh, face receiving and showing that we care about this person, but we don't value you. We value this person because, look, they're important. We don't value you because you look this way. They look this way. That's good. You look that way. Meh. We'll let you in. I mean, we're not mean or something like that. And yet they were sinning and they were committing the sin of partiality or discrimination. What motivates partiality? The desire for gain. Some, in some way, they were hoping that if we welcome these people and really make them feel special, then what the benefit will be to us is, well, it doesn't state it clearly, but we can fill in the blanks. Maybe they felt like, maybe they'll hire me. Maybe they'll give me a better job. Maybe people will finally recognize that we Christians really are a force to be contended with because we've got the people of status and renown in our community showing up here. Partiality was looking for something. When we judge or show partiality, it's because we have something to gain or a way to better ourselves. We see this in politics. We see this when when it, you know, it goes to relationships within uh, just even just personal relationships. And it's like, well, we welcome these people, but not these people. But, you know, God does not show partiality. Romans 2.1, Colossians 3.25, Ephesians 6.9 all tell us that God does not show partiality. If God does not show partiality, then there certainly was no place for these believers to be showing that kind of partiality in their, midst, in their midst. Now, we get this phrase here in verse 1. It says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Why, why add this phrase, the Lord of glory? It's just meant to show that if Jesus, the one who walked among us, who showed mercy to the poor who showed kindness to the, to the person that was caught in sin, who showed love towards those that were uh, in a different um, ethnic background, like the woman at the, at the well of Samaria. If he didn't do this, and he's the Lord of glory, then certainly there's no place for us to be showing these same kinds of actions. One author says, by acting on class-based distinctions that God does not make and that Jesus did not make during his earthly ministry, the assembly belies their professed faith. They do not act like God's people or followers of the Christ. That's what partiality does. Partiality, it, 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 it uncovers us for who we really are. Well, I, you know, you know, I love Jesus. I love the Lord. I'm a Christian. And yet, if we show partiality on any level, based upon the way a person's face looks because of their economics, because of their, uh, the class that they come from, because of ethnicity, because of the color of their skin, whatever the reason is, because they go to a different church down the road, God forbid that we would do that. But it happens, doesn't it? 
we show this kind of partiality. Uh, listen, as I say this, I have really thought through this, and I am not aware of any of this that's happening as a problem within the church at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg. But it's certainly what's facing our country. So I'm not targeting, I'm not kind of, you know, trying to aim at somebody here that I really have in mind or some problem that's going on in the church. I'm just wanting to speak and I'm hoping that as we look to the Word of God that it becomes instructive to you as well to me first and foremost of how we need to walk this out. Well, in verses 2 through 4, we see that partiality was maybe having that motivation of self-centeredness and not other-centered. And what he says in verse 4, he says, You have not shown partiality among yourselves, or have you not shown partiality among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts? God calls discrimination what? What does he call it? Evil. It is an evil thing when discrimination and partiality to receive or reject somebody based upon the way their face looks, their way their clothes look, or any other issue that we may throw into that mix to determine their place in my presence. Jesus demonstrated the importance of being other-centered. And it began in Bethlehem when he came and was born as a small little baby to Mary. That was his first act that we are able to see in this earth where he was other-centered. It was not for himself that he went from that divine place of eternal fellowship with God to take on human flesh. Now, we, like, we look at our, our bodies, we think, well, humanity, I mean, we're made in the image of God. That's true, but there is a, a world of difference, an eternity of difference between humanity and divinity, and yet he took on divinity. He humbled himself. He took the form of, his man, of a man. You see, taking on humanity was a, a humbling act to engage in. And he did that, and he was other-centered. So we need to learn from our Lord. We need to see this. Jesus taught on the need to love our neighbor. We'll look at it in a moment, but he taught this lesson even in the midst of uh, a racial division that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. And he taught the importance of loving one's neighbor. In verse 5, it says, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of the world to be rich in faith and the heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? He begins with that first word that says, Listen. We need to listen to the Lord. This is a point of emphasis where, where James is like, What I have to say is something you need to pay attention to. This is not just another point, this is an important point that we need to pay attention to. You can imagine the, the uh, problems that would have entered into that fellowship as the, those that were among the poor coming in and feeling disrespected and discriminated against and not wanted and not valued. Oh, I mean, how would you feel in those circumstances? All of us would feel inclined to walk away. I'm not welcomed. I'm not valued here. And so they would all feel inclined to walk away. And that's a problem. It's such a big problem that James says, listen to what I have to say. 
make sure we listen. He wants us to understand the seriousness of this issue and the error and to change course, to repent. I think it's, it's worth noting a couple of verses in Proverbs. Proverbs 14, 31. He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. Or Proverbs 17, 5. He who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. <clears throat> he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. So the scripture has told us that if we see somebody in a place of need and we discriminate against them and oppress them, that that is a reproach against our maker. Oxford Dictionary defines reproach as expressing disapproval of. When I show partiality or discrimination to somebody, I am saying, God, I don't approve of you. Well, that kind of really changes the way we should be thinking about this, doesn't it? Because who wants to stand in the place of having our finger in the face of God and saying, I reproach you. I don't like what you do. I don't like what you've called. I don't like what you've made. I don't like this person and their skin color. I don't like their person and their language. I don't like their person and their economics. I don't like poor people. I don't like rich people. It can flow any direction, can't it? We can discriminate in a 360 uh, direction. It's not one-way street. The poor can disc be discriminated against the rich, and the rich can discriminate against the poor. But all of that is a reproach, an expression of disapproval of our maker. I, I think, you know, when the, the Proverbs were written, and it says reproaches his maker, the emphasis of maker says Consider your place. You're created. You don't have much power here. You think you may, but understand that you're accountable to a maker. So important. But he goes on here in verse 5 to emphasize that God has chosen the poor. What's that? You're rejecting the very people God is choosing. Now, what about this? Does this mean that God is showing partiality? It's not to say that God is showing partiality, but throughout the history of the church, those that have been most inclined to come and hear the gospel are those that are in the place of feeling the pain and the misery and the hardship of this life the most. And that is the downtrodden, that is the oppressed, that is the poor. That's why every one of us must become downtrodden spiritually poor, spiritually oppressed, if you will, broken, that we might receive what the Lord has to say. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's that? Blessed are you when you come to the place, when you realize that spiritually you have nothing before God and you become a broken person. I love that song we used to sing about being sweetly broken at the cross. Because that's what it is. It's a sweet breaking that comes to us before we can ever come to salvation. As long as we feel that we are uh, uh, you know, rich and have need of nothing, we will never call upon a Savior. But those that are physically in that position have an easier time reaching the conclusion they need help than to the person who has it all going for them. It's almost like a Novocaine to, the, to those that have it going so well of their need that they have. And that is the point. 
that the Lord is making there in verse 5. God has always had a soft spot in his heart to the poor, to the needy, to the downcast, to the broken. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Israel, you were chosen not because you were the greatest, but because you were the least. And this is where the Lord's heart gravitate towards. The whole worship system in the Old Testament made provision for the poor person that came. If you couldn't come with the lamb, you could come with the turtle dove. There was a way in which all people, even poor people, could come before the Lord. There was a, the laws of gleaning so that the poor people would, not, would never be without food, but that they could go into the fields after a first harvest, and whatever was left, whatever fell, Whatever was in the, the corners of the field was to be there for the poor. God's eyes were always upon them. There was a sabbatical year of release when all debt was set free for those that sold themselves as indentured servants, to, which was common in their day. They would be released. This was something that the Lord instituted so that those that were misfortunate in the world's goods would have a way to be released. And yet, here is the church that James is addressing, showing partiality, looking at the face, that dirty face, if you will, of the poor person coming in and saying, ah, we don't have a lot of room here for you. But you can't sit here. Well, I, there's not many places. Well, just sit at my feet. Oh, the arrogance and the pride of that. And yet, they were not struck by that. It took an outsider a servant of the Lord, a prophet from God, James, to say, this is wrong. Now, clearly, there were those in the congregation that saw this as wrong, and that's why it was reported to him that he might actually speak out against it. Verses 6 and 7, he says, But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress and drag you into the courts? Do not blaspheme that notable name by which you are called. He says, you're being oppressed by these people, and yet you're showing kindness to them. It doesn't make sense. But notice in verse 7, he says, Don't blaspheme the noble name by which you are called. Not only do we uh, reproach our maker when we show uh, partiality, but we also blaspheme the name of the Lord. And boy, with the issue that is so in front of us, isn't that exactly what has happened down through the ages? Slavery has caused people to blaspheme. I mean, there were many times people were held in slavery and the scripture verses were being used. And it caused people to blaspheme the name of the Lord because of that discrimination, because of that oppression. We are called by the name of the Lord. We get to carry the name of Jesus. And if you carry the name of Jesus, we all should live like Jesus. I know every one of you as a parent have probably referred to your family name when raising your kids. Many times I said to my kids, oh, hey, Warners don't do that. 
We don't talk like that. We don't treat each other like that. We don't behave like that. We don't quit like that. Many times, not to portray my kids as being terrible people because they're actually wonderful people, but many times I said, warners are not quitters. You got that name? Then don't quit. And so this is something we instilled into our kids, that there were certain characteristics that we expected first and foremost because we, are, we bear the name of Jesus, but also because this is our family. But it is so true, it is so more, much more significant that we would never blaspheme the name of the Lord through partiality, that people would look at our faith and say, if that's what Christianity is, I want nothing to do with it, because that's oppressive. That shows discrimination. There's nothing more inclusive than the gospel. It is the most inclusive message philosophy that you can find. Because the Lord is calling all men to himself. He doesn't show partiality. He doesn't just say, I want you and I want you. No, he calls all people, especially those that are in need. Keep on moving on. Verse 8. It says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. So James has been discussing the specific issue of economic discrimination. However, the sin of economic discrimination is just one aspect of partiality. It's just one outlet of it. Partiality, as I said, can come in many, many different ways. And today in our country, we see the results of that discrimination. I'll be very clear. I, I have been well aware that I could probably offend everybody in this message, which might be about right if everybody gets offended. Maybe I said the right thing. But, you know, let me just say, there is there's no justification for thievery. There is no justification for murder. There's no justification for arson. There's no justification for violence. That is called sin. Your Savior, my Savior, died on the cross for what? For sin. I cannot celebrate, I cannot condone any act of sin that my Savior hung on the cross for. So there's no, there's no giving of a pass here. Really, in my mind, to sit and see people's homes burned down and businesses burned down and people to be uh, beaten down and beat up and even put to death and to say, well, this is not the time to call that out, that's the very reason why the problem of slavery began in the first place because nobody was calling it out. It's to make the same error again with a different issue. So you've got to speak against all unrighteousness. This is the instruction from Scripture. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Can we abhor the discrimination of, of slavery? Can we abhor the, discrimina uh, the, the, the sin of, of segregation and keeping people oppressed? We ought to. If we know anything about Jesus and his character, yes. But that doesn't stop me from looking at that, those same types of things that are happening right in front of my face in my 24-hour clock and say, that's wrong too. This is, not, this is a, a, always it's the right time to call out and to acknowledge what is wrong and what is right. But in doing that, it's not to take attention off that which is wrong. Clearly, clearly, 
You know, in our country, there's the black community, and I'm not going to pretend to speak for them because as soon as I would try to make a single statement for them all, somebody's going to say, I don't agree with that. Okay, I understand that. But clearly there is a large portion of the black community that says, we're not over what happened. We're not over the, uh, the effects of it. Now, they might clearly are no longer enslaved. Clearly, the segregation is no longer there. But are they, is there discrimination still happening? Yeah. I was shocked this week. I was listening to an interview by, um, of uh, Dr. Tony Evans. Many of you know him and appreciate him and love him. He's a black brother. And he made this statement that in 1986, when he was wanting to begin his radio ministry, he called, started calling up radio stations and asked if he could get on the radio, and they told them that they don't allow. Christian stations told him, Dr. Tony Evans, we don't allow black preachers on our radio station. 1986. So clearly there are things that are happening that are wrong, that continue to... Uh, show that kind of discrimination and partiality. And so they want to know from people like me and like from, people, from a lot of people like you that, yeah, we think that was wrong and we'll call it sin. It was wrong then and any form of it is wrong today. But so is all evil wrong. All sin is wrong. How can we make a difference? Well, we have it right here in verse 8. By loving your neighbor as yourself. A lot of the solutions that are being put out there for what needs to happen to solve this issue in the heart of mankind will only fail and will only lead to more problems. The answer is that we need to love our neighbor as ourself. And you cannot do that until you experience the grace and the love of Jesus Christ hitting your own heart and your own life. And then you can love as we have been called to love. Well, I can love people. Love your enemy. This is what the Word of God says. Do you find that easy? I don't find that easy. I don't find it easy to love enemies. But that's what I've been called to do. And Jesus said, you know, I mean, you, you guys pat yourself on the back. You think you're doing so well. You love those who love you. But I say to you, love your enemy. So we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, when we think about that teaching of loving our neighbor as ourselves, we must keep in mind what the gospel says. We must remember that gender and class and, some, and one's ethnic background has no place in determining a person standing before God and therefore them being welcomed into my presence in our presence. Shirley Newble. A Christian black woman from Nashville wrote this, Our outward appearance has zero bearing on the gospel. In Galatians we read, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. These verses have been misinterpreted, and I can see why. Paul isn't saying that these various roles or descriptions, Jew, Greek, male, female, etc., no longer exist. In other words, they retain their various roles, here it is. But in Christ, we are all equal. In the gospel, there is no superiority. In the gospel, there is no color. It's not to say that we don't have skin color. We have skin color. But in the gospel, there is no color. We are equal in creation and equal in redemption. The gospel ushers in the new covenant, no longer requiring believers to become a Jew or to follow the Mosaic law. 
Because the ceremonies do not save. In other words, being Jew or being a Greek had no distinction in the gospel. Yet let's be honest, we make distinctions and judgments based on those distinctions. But the gospel is open to all. Jesus affirmed the importance of this royal law, as it's called in Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40, where he's asked what the greatest commandment was. And he said, well, the greatest commandment is that you should love your Lord, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, if we love God and we love our neighbor, we don't need any laws. You don't need any law. There's no need for laws if we love God and we love our neighbor the way we should. Because the law of love will hold me in check and it will always go further than any written law can. Because love chooses the highest good for another person. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 10. We're starting to wind it down here. Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 36. Here we see Jesus teaching a parable of the Good Samaritan. He's giving a teaching on who is your neighbor. James has said, love your neighbor. Who's our neighbor? Well, Jesus makes it really clear who our neighbor is. Now, in the context of James 2, they weren't loving their poor neighbor. But again, as I said, Partiality doesn't just have, it's not just a class distinction that shows oppression. It can go in terms of of ethnicity as well. There was the, the most fierce racial divide that existed in the land of Israel in Jesus' day was between the Samaritans and the Jews. It was bitter. And so Jesus wanted to teach about who we love. And he says this, Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. Now again, presumably, Leaving from Jerusalem, we're talking about an Israelite, a Jewish man. And he fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Again, presumably the ones that did this were his own countrymen. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, and when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, and everybody gasped. He's not going to start teaching about Samaritans, is he? He's not going to bring these people into the discussion. I mean, teacher, you want to talk to us about how to live and how to do it. Don't, don't, don't call upon those people. There's nothing we can learn from them. And yet Jesus went there. He went right at a, a, a point of racial divide that was tense in that day. We don't feel the Samaritan Jew thing today. But we know what racial tension is. And that, you can take all that we feel and see and, and uh, mourn over in our country, and you can infuse it into this one word. In the minds of everybody, this began to explode. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, and I can just imagine Jesus pausing right there. And when he saw him, giving him opportunity to maybe begin to fill in the blanks. The Bible doesn't say that, but can you imagine? When he saw him, what is he going to do? We know what the Levite did. We know what the priest did. But what's this arch enemy going to do? 
he had compassion. So he went out and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I come, I will repay you. So, Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among thieves? The answer is obvious. It's the Samaritan who showed love and kindness. And that's who our neighbor is. Our neighbor is a person who comes in, who finds themselves in a different social uh, economic bracket than us. And we're to love them. Our neighbor is somebody who has a different language or has a different skin color or has whatever different. That is our neighbor. If you are in proximity to somebody and you have the opportunity to show them kindness and love and compassion, then that's your neighbor Go to work is what Jesus is saying. There's another real raw, honest moment that pokes right at the racial divide that existed. Another equally racial, uh, uh, tense uh, relationship in, at this time was between Jews and Gentiles. Jews never, we talked a little bit about this last week, Jews never would go and have a meal with the Gentile because the dietary laws were different. They didn't want to share together. And so the Lord blew that up there at the house of Cornelius in the vision that Peter had. Acts 10 and 11, read it on your own. But now, years later, we read this. Galatians 2, 11 through 13. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, Jews, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew himself, separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was carried away with this hypocrisy. Remember, partiality looks for a benefit. Peter shows partiality and discrimination because he doesn't want to lose the benefit of having a good standing and reputation in the mind of these Jews. And in order to do that, he tramples those Gentile brothers. Did they know it? Did they see it? Did they feel it? Paul could see it. And he called him out on it. He rebuked him to his face. Wow, that would have been a tense moment to have been in that room, don't you think? Two of the pillars of the church. Peter and Paul. And here's the interesting thing. Peter is the one that God used to open the door to the Samaritans with the gospel and to open the door to the Gentiles. And yet here he is getting caught and showing discrimination against these brothers. And he didn't want to because he withdrew himself. He feared what other people would think about that relationship about that encounter, about that closeness, about sharing a meal together. May we allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and see if there is any wicked way, if there is any uh, division or partiality towards people that are poor, people that are from a certain town or from a different church or have a different skin color than us. And we would withdraw, we would avoid well, I'm not, I'm not a racist, but you know, I just don't like to be around him. Oh, you got it. That's partiality. That's exactly what Peter did. He didn't want to be around them. And so the Lord rebuked him. Through, of all people, the least person you would think 
in the natural, a Pharisee, a former Pharisee. But the gospel had transformed him. Paul had experienced a little bit of partiality when he first got saved, and people didn't want to be around him because they were scared of him. He learned the lesson of how to accept. It's a lesson that we all are still learning. We must be careful. Again, I want to say this. While we search our hearts and walk in love toward all people, and we have compassion, and we feel what they feel, it's all people in all circumstances. Again, some will say, well, this is the wrong time to make that point about all people. I, I, again, I must disagree. It's always the right time to abhor evil. It's always the right time to cling to good. It's always the right time to weep with those who weep. It's always the right time to have compassion and care and concern. We close here, verses 9 through 11. It says, but if you show partiality, you commit sin. Let's just be clear, right? James 2.9, if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And they're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm, I'm a good guy. I share the gospel with people. I give. I mean, the, this meeting's happening at my house. It's, and they could go and appeal to all the things they could do. I feed the poor. I, you know, I, I help out you know, here at this place and that place. But if you don't have love, 1 Corinthians 13, you're what? You're a noisemaker. You're just an annoying noise. You feed the poor. You can give your life. But if you don't have love. So you see, they were feeling comfortable about all the other right things that they were doing in their walk and in their faith. But they had this one thing, partiality. And somehow they had got to the place where they absolved themselves of being lawbreakers. And James says, you're a transgressor when you do this. This is sin. Don't make any mistake about it. Verse 12, so speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. What is the law of liberty? It's the gospel. What does the gospel do? It sets us free of all of those hang-ups to start and to show love. Not to start, to show love and to kindness to the needy, to those that are brokenhearted, to have compassion. This law liberates me from the power of sin. And discrimination, face receiving, as he says there, the word for partiality. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. That's a warning, right? That's a warning. You don't want to stand before God without mercy. And there is this, you, this unmistakable tie in Scripture between Showing mercy towards each other and receiving mercy from God. So if I show mercy, then I earn God's mercy? No, if you've received God's mercy, you can't help but to show mercy when you see your own state. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The sinful treatment of the widow and the orphan there in James, those that probably were coming in with those filthy clothing, was an offense to God, it was sin, and it was setting them up for a potentially merciless meeting with God. And he says, you don't want to do that. If we lack compassion or forgiveness to those who are in need or to those who have wronged us, then may we hear what the word of the Lord has to say. 
and love our neighbor. Again, you've heard me use this definition for years. What is love? It is choosing the highest good for another person. Run that definition through the life of Jesus and see if you don't see that that's exactly what he did. He chose the highest good for us, the incarnation. He chose the highest good. He taught us even when he was being mocked. He chose the highest good. He went to the cross to die for our sins. He always is choosing the highest good, showing love. And now the second greatest commandment is that we love our neighbor. And who is our neighbor? It's the people that are the closest to us. It's the people that are relationally in a a community the furthest from us. We love all people because God loves all people. He's our Father. And if we don't do that, then we reproach our Maker. Now, as as we wrap it up here, again, I, I don't know of any issue that I'm addressing within, I would say, the walls of Calvary Chapel Lynchburg, but within the parking lot of Calvary Chapel Lynchburg. I, I don't know of any issue, but you know what's happening in our community, and you know what's going on in your own heart. You have to seek the Lord. And ask him, Lord, search my heart and see if there be any evil way, any wicked way. Is there discrimination in my heart? Well, yeah, but you know, I I do that because, I don't know, there's no place for it. There's no place for that. We love our enemies. We only love the people that look like us and act like us and benefit us. Jesus said, big deal. The Gentiles, sinners do that. But the Christian is somebody that loves their enemies. And listen, I in no way am trying to communicate that people of a different background, economically, racially, are our enemies. They're not. But if you are in that place that because of some experience you've had, whatever side of the spectrum you're on, you've dismissed yourself from showing love, remember this. You don't find justification before the Lord because he's already told you to love your enemy. And this is it. This is the answer. And when we love those, all people, the doors are going to open up for us to share the gospel. We have an opportunity to speak in our neighborhoods, those people we work with. We have opportunity. And we must move forward in this love of one another, choosing the highest good for another person. There's a lot of things I don't know how to address and I don't know how to fix that are going on in this world, but this is what I do know. I need to love people, all people. And I need to love them every opportunity I have. This is what we have to say. Be very careful, my brothers and sisters, and don't be called into a wrangling of words at this hour. Leave it alone and love people. Our mission is still the same, and that's to save every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Don't argue your point and lose the opportunity to present the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we call upon you asking for you to have mercy upon us. 
to, Lord, give us a heart that is pleasing and right to you and a blessing to all people. Lord, we deal in love more than anything else. We are the people who deal in love. And so this problem, we've been uniquely created in Christ Jesus to deal with. So, Lord, may we walk in compassion and mercy. May we rebuke in our life and in the lives of others when we see discrimination and partiality, even as Paul did to Peter. Lord, we pray that you would heal our nation. We pray that our nation would turn to you. We pray, Lord, for safety. We pray for those who have been hurt, who have been oppressed. We pray for those whose businesses have been burned down. We pray for, Lord, the people who defend us, the law officers in this country who are probably feeling more uh, uncared for and appreciated than ever. Lord, we, we can... We as Christians, we can, we can love all people in all circumstances at the same time. It's not one or the other. So, Lord, touch our hearts afresh with your love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.